Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today's podcast is one of the special episodes that we're publishing during 2020 to mark 100 years of women's suffrage in the United States. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave women the right to vote, was ratified on the 18th of August of 1920. My guest today is Susan Trollinger, who's a professor in the English department at the University of Dayton, where she teaches writing and rhetoric. And she's joining us from a studio at the University of Dayton to talk about rhetorical devices deployed by women fighting for the right to vote, some of which, I understand, involved corsets. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And am I right about corsets? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, women in the 19th century and the early 20th century were definitely wearing corsets and they wore them when they marched for women's suffrage. Okay, so we'll get into that a little bit later. But I guess I wanted to start by asking you how you became interested in the women's suffrage movement, because it's not necessarily what one thinks an English professor focuses on. One maybe thinks of literature, but how did you get interested in it? My PhD is actually in the field of rhetoric and communication. Rhetoric is a strange field. It ends up in different places depending on where you are institutionally. At the University of Dayton, the folks who do rhetoric find themselves in the English department. So I was working on a dissertation on the third wave of the women's movement, and my committee told me that I needed to start with the first wave. And so that took me to the women's suffrage movement, and it turned out to be a very fascinating component of my dissertation. I'm sure. I'm wondering, can you explain what actually rhetoric is? So typically when people use the word rhetoric in common parlance, it means something like BS, right? So we'll refer to politicians and their rhetoric versus something like real discussion of issues. But it turns out that rhetoric is much more interesting than that. Rhetoric encompasses all of the ways that human beings uh, persuade one another of their ideas or how to be in the world. And so you can talk about the rhetoric of a social movement like the women's suffrage movement? Um, how did women mount this campaign to to persuade men, white men in particular, uh, to give them the right to vote? That's a huge obstacle. Uh, and they managed to do it. How did they do it? It's a fascinating question. And that's what rhetoric is all about. How do people persuade one another to change things from the way that they are? So we're going to be talking a lot about the rhetorical strategies used by women campaigning for the right to vote uh, throughout our conversation. But first, can you tell us a little bit about how this whole struggle for women's suffrage began? So women are in a terrible position in the middle of the 19th century, such that when a woman got married, she basically experienced a civic death. Her husband took over all control of her property. If she and her husband became legally separated, she lost all rights to her children. She could not inherit wealth. She was basically erased as a citizen subject. So how does a woman like that become convinced, right, that she should fight for her rights? And it turns out that and this is a theoretical notion from the discipline of rhetoric, women were doubly articulated. They were articulated into a position of submission by way of the cult of true womanhood. This was an ideology at the time that said that women were to be submissive, they were limited to the domestic sphere, they were to be pious and pure. 
On the other hand, by way of the Great Awakening in the mid-19th century, precisely because they were pious and pure, they were encouraged to work in the public sphere on behalf of certain moral movements for temperance and especially for abolition. So women were simultaneously relegated to the private sphere and encouraged to move into the public sphere to fight on behalf of these moral crusades, and they did. Along the way, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, two famous early woman suffrage uh, workers, go to the London World Slavery Association meeting and are denied delegate status on the basis of their sex, which makes no sense to them. And they get together and think, you know what? We should start a movement for women's rights. And so eight years later in Seneca Falls, New York, they hold the first women's rights convention. And it's amazing. They put the word out three days before the convention and 300 people show up on the first day, men and women. Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, other huge voices in the abolition movement show up and argue on behalf of universal suffrage. So this is how it happens, right? So it's this wonderful contradiction that's incredibly productive. Okay, so it's when they're fighting for the rights of other people that they begin to realize they have no rights themselves. Exactly. And what was that first women's rights convention, I think you called it, in Seneca Falls? What was that like? Do we have any reports from that? Yes, it's really an incredible event. So this is the beginning of the rhetorical strategy, where what they do is they take up the language of the Declaration of Independence, and what they do is they insert woman. So, you know, we declare these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. They simply insert woman into an Enlightenment document, according to which the idea within the Enlightenment is that all human beings are equal. And they simply say, right, and that's why you need to include us. And it's explosive. So they uh, create a declaration of sentiments at that convention. They itemize their demands, which include women's rights to own property, to enter into contracts, to uh, jointly have rights with their children, right, so that if their husband abandons them, they don't lose their children. For them to have the right to their own earnings, the labor force at that time is, not that time, but the early 19-teens, 20% of the labor force is women, but they have no right to own their own property or to keep their earnings. So these are the kinds of demands that they come up with. The last one that they add, which is the most controversial, which is so great, is the right to suffrage. And they put that in there, and there is some opposition to that, that it's too radical, but it does pass. And that's really the platform that the women's movement in the second half of the 19th century and early into the 20th century. That's their platform. Okay, so what was the year that this initial convention took place in Seneca Falls? 1848. 1848. And how did they start to spread this message? Because you said there were 300 people there on the first day, which presumably was a lot at the time, but it's not a lot when you think of the population of the United States. So how did they start spreading it beyond those 300 people? So Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony meet one another, and they form this incredible, like, 50-year partnership. And when Elizabeth Cady Stanton is not pregnant, which was often, she had seven children, which really 
ticked Susan B. Anthony off. She's like, no, don't tell me you're pregnant again. But anyway, so they would go out on the Lyceum, which was this official public speaking circuit in the 19th century, and they would just go all over the United States, and they would give speeches about women's rights and women's suffrage. And there were ways in which they were pretty successful. There were changes in laws across the United States in terms of women's ability to own property, to keep their earnings, but it was very uneven. And then others took up the cause. They had some success, especially in the West, for women getting full suffrage rights. And then there were real obstacles and setbacks. So once the U.S. enters the Civil War, that's not that far off from 1848. Civil War starts in like 1861. Then you have a series of constitutional amendments. And it's, I believe, it's the 14th Amendment that introduces the word male for the first time into the Constitution to say that you can't deny a male the right of suffrage, right? And so that was a huge setback because prior to that, the Constitution had never stipulated that a citizen had to be male. So am I understanding you right that women were getting the right to vote in some states but not in others? That is correct. The way that the Constitution put it, the right of suffrage was set by states, not by the federal government. So it was a big move in the 19-teens when the National Women's Party, this is this new party that's created by Alice Paul and others, and they argue that this has to be a federal movement, not a state-by-state movement. And they start pushing for an amendment to the Constitution to establish women's right to suffrage. Prior to that, you have the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which is an amalgamation of other previous organizations. They are all about the state-by-state effort, which is a much more moderate kind of conservative effort, and in particular one that is not about giving black women the right to vote. The National Women's Party was a much more radical party, and those are the people that I'm referring to when I talk about rebels and corsets. Those were the women who marched with African-American women nationally to push for a national constitutional amendment to change things for all women. How did that come about? A number of suffrage fighters in the United States came out of a Quaker tradition because that tradition was deeply steeped in this whole notion that the way to bring about Jesus's second coming was to purify the nation. The idea was there would be this thousand years when you would be purifying the human race and then Jesus would return. So these folks were very active in temperance, abolition. Uh, women's suffrage in order to make the nation good enough for Jesus to return. Alice Paul grew up in that tradition. I don't know how she or why exactly she got to England, but she did. And there she encountered the women's suffrage movement. And the radical strategies of that movement, which were instead of just like petitioning, pleading, these women insisted upon women's right to vote. And so she brought those strategies back to the United States when she returned. And she set up the National Women's Party, which is really interesting in and of itself. This is not just some association. This is a national party. It's a political party. And she and her colleagues began to engage in political tactics that only men had used. So for instance, on the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration in 1913, she and the National Women's Party, they staged this huge parade in Washington, D.C. 
5,000 women show up from all over the country. And this is where I'm, I'm getting to your question. Among them are African-American women. They're delegations from various states in the union, and they show up and march down Pennsylvania Avenue with signs saying things like women's place is in the home or women's work is in the home. They're satirical, and they're marching in their corsets, and they're marching in white dresses. So they are mobilizing the cult of true womanhood. They are in white. They are being very feminine. They have their hats on, right, in the whole nine yards. And they're saying, we're political subjects. We're out here demanding the right that the Enlightenment and Enlightenment philosophers that our own Declaration of Independence would indicate is ours. We're claiming it. So they're not asking anymore. They're claiming. And that's the big change. And that is when followed up with the silent sentinels. This is when Alice Paul and her party they protest out in front of the White House. This is during World War I when Woodrow Wilson is saying that to get the country into the war because the U.S. didn't want to be in that war, he got elected on the grounds he wouldn't get the U.S. into the war. But then he shifts and he argues, well, we're going to make the world safe for democracy. They're out in front of the White House saying, what about us? Where's democracy for women? And they get hauled off to prison, and they're treated really awfully. The conditions in the prison are disgusting. So Alice Paul and her colleagues mobilize a hunger strike to protest the conditions within which they are being housed. And the prison warden orders them to be force-fed, which is a horrific form of torture. And this gets out into the press, And that's really the turnaround. Once people see that these women who, I mean, they're the silent sentinels, when they're in front of the White House, they've got signs, but that's it. They're not even saying anything, right? That they got hauled off to jail and then force-fed, this really turns the discourse in the country such that Wilson says, okay, I'm going to put a bill in front of Congress for women's suffrage. Oh, gosh. It's really powerful. Yes. Yes. Just going back to something we were talking about earlier, you talked about male right to vote, that being specified as male. And you said that was a big setback for the movement. What brought that about? I'm not a historian, but (laughs) so others could answer that better than I can. But um, at the end of the Civil War, you get this series of amendments that are all about addressing slavery. So like the first one is that you abolish slavery. Second one is that you give all males the right to suffrage regardless of their previous condition of servitude. So you're saying, even if you were a slave before, if you're a male, you get the right to vote. So these are amendments that are passed quickly after the end of the Civil War to address slavery. And of course, that is very contentious. And there is an effort to say men and women. So then the the next amendment is about that you can't deny any rights based on race. I can't remember what else, but it's not gender, right? So you have these two amendments that are specifically about rectifying the injustices against slaves, but it's particular to males. And you have people like William Lord Garrison arguing for universal suffrage, that all human beings should have the right to vote. But then there are various factions that are saying, oh, but we're not doing women. The idea that women would have the vote was incredibly disruptive. And so this is why when women 
parade in Washington, D.C. or Columbus, Ohio or Akron, Ohio, wherever they are, they're getting pinched to the point of black and blue bruises. There would be like a half million protesters to the march in Washington, D.C. show up to stop them. This is very threatening. And interestingly, one of the big lobbying groups against women's right to vote was the anti-temperance movement. The liquor lobby doesn't want women to get the right to vote because they're afraid that that's going to lead to temperance. It's a lot about just women shouldn't be in the public sphere. Women don't, they're ignorant. They don't have the right kind of constitution to be politically engaged. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, men don't want to, not be able to drink. And so when the women were marching with their white dresses and their corsets, they had these signs saying the women's place is in the home. And these signs are ironic. Were they also trying to ensure that they were not seen as being overly emotional, for example, because I know that's another criticism that was leveled at women as to why they shouldn't vote. It's because they're all emotion. They don't think with their intellect. Absolutely right. A central commitment of this movement is to the enlightenment conviction that all human beings have the capacity to reason. And this is what gives them the right to participate in politics. It's wonderful. If you just go online, you can see wonderful images of these marches. So they're all in line, right? They're very orderly. They're not being disruptive at all. They are marching uniformly down Pennsylvania Avenue or down whatever Main Street in Columbus in a very orderly fashion. And like the silent sentinels, right? They are not being disruptive. They are simply putting their very rational case before the public and saying, we're human beings. Why don't we get to vote? And do you know if there are any African-American women or other women of color who are in positions of leadership as part of this movement? So this was a big problem in the first wave of the women's movement. You certainly had African-American women who participated in these various parades and protests and that kind of thing. But unfortunately, the leadership of the movement was largely white. And very unfortunately, you had people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who... Uh, when mail was introduced into the Constitution, uh, they basically went racist. They thought that it was too radical to advocate on behalf of voting rights for African-American women. And so they made arguments that white women were superior to both African-American men and African-American women. And it's a huge, unfortunate problem in the first wave. Okay, okay. And in terms of the kind of reaction that they were getting and the pushback they were getting, you've already talked about men who were concerned that women were going to introduce prohibition. Were there any other major areas of concern? And was there any pushback coming from women as well? Did did women sometimes think that they shouldn't have the right to vote? Oh, sure. It's a very similar kind of thing as you get in the anti-ERA movement of Phyllis Schlafly in the 1980s, where the concern is that women will lose protections. So one of the ways that you get women to go along with their civil death upon marriage is you offer them protection. You say, well, you can't own property, you can't keep your earnings, you don't have any right to your children, but men are, your husband presumably, is obliged to protect you. And you get a certain kind of status, right, in the cult of true womanhood as a real woman. So there absolutely were women who resisted 
this movement and who thought that getting the right to vote wasn't worth losing that social standing. From what you said earlier, it sounded like the way that the women were treated following this march was so appalling that that played a big part in them getting the right to vote. Is that right? Or what else went on to actually make that happen? You know, it's a 72-year campaign. So in part, you got Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and others who were on the road just relentlessly making the argument on very enlightenment terms, putting the question, like, how do you deny women the right to be political actors when they're human beings? What's the argument, right? So you have that. But then what Alice Paul adds is this radical component that really puts it in people's faces. And then they get hauled off to jail. But it's this misfire, right? So you've got the cult of true womanhood that says women are pure and pious and domestic, and they're the ones who protect the moral integrity, right, of the nation and raise our children up to be good human beings. But then they're in jail. All they've done is stood in front of the White House with a sign. So that juxtaposition just doesn't sit well in the public perception. And then on top of it, you add force feedings and other forms of torture. This is a bridge too far. These women need to be released. And, you know, after 70 years of fighting, they finally have a sympathetic ear. Were there any particularly notable cases of changes of opinion? For example, somebody who had been radically anti the idea of women's suffrage coming out in the press or something saying, oh, well, I've changed my mind and this is why. Probably the most radical that I can think of is Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is a really interesting figure. (laughs) So he comes in to office on this idea that he is going to be the spokesman for the people. Right. Unlike previous presidents, there's some tradition of this prior to him, but he really campaigns on he's going to be the voice of the people. And he is, in that sense, going to be very democratically minded. But Woodrow Wilson is a complicated figure. Um, He loved, for instance, Birth of a Nation, which, of course, is the film that inaugurates the birth of the second Ku Klux Klan. And he resists uh, vehemently the effort by women to get the right to vote. So the fact that he turns around and actually puts a bill in front of Congress to give women the right to vote is quite striking. After this bill gets put forward by Wilson, what happened in those final, Is it, are we talking months or years between the bill being put forward and women gaining suffrage? You know, it's one of the things that's just, I love about this story is that Um, So women in Ohio, the Ohio Women's Suffrage Association, engages in three campaigns from 1912 to 1917 to try to get women full suffrage. By that meaning, they get to vote in every election, not just like in school elections or something like that, right? And it fails all three times. But then... In 1917, they start to get the idea that a federal amendment is coming. So what happens is that women working on behalf of women's suffrage in Ohio work really hard to get men into the Ohio state legislature who will support a federal amendment. And so amazingly, despite their three failures, Um, In 1912, 1914, 1917, when the federal amendment comes through, it passed. The state of Ohio is the fifth state to pass it. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. So this incredible just grassroots work to get the right people into the Ohio legislature, and it pays off hugely and very quickly. I think it's like, it's just a few months when, you know, when the, when, uh, the 19th Amendment is ratified in the state of Ohio. Oh, gosh, right. And do you know what the first presidential election was after women gained the right to vote? Uh, again, I'm not an American historian. Um, so I don't have that for you. But what I can tell you is that a big surprise, there was the expectation of a gender gap, and it did not materialize. A gender gap in what respect? So the expectation was that women would vote in ways that were significantly different from men, and that did not pan out. And actually, that was one of the things that kind of took the winds out of the sails of the women's movement in the early 20th century. Okay, I'm I'm feeling that I should know why that matters, because I would have thought it doesn't matter so much if there's not a gender gap between who is voting for who. The point is that everybody's voting. So I don't understand why that would detract from women moving forward to claim other rights. Part of it has to do with the fact that in the course of those 72 years, they had waged successful battles for a lot of those rights. So a part of it has to do with their success. And then the fact that women don't seem to vote in ways that are significantly different from men seems to undermine the idea that the women's vote is politically significant. So you have politicians who are mostly men who feel comfortable ignoring women because they don't vote differently. Okay, okay. And also going back to something you were talking, you were talking about Alice Paul coming back from England, having been shown very radical ways of doing things. And the way that you were describing how she went about her activism when she got back to the States seemed very effective, but it didn't strike me as radical in the way that that word is sometimes used. So, for example, she wasn't throwing herself under the king's horse or anything like that. In those days, for a woman to march down Pennsylvania Avenue as if she had political standing was radical. For a woman to stand in front of the White House and hold up a sign that basically says that the president is a hypocrite is radical. She is not to do that. She is to be submissive to all male authority figures. So she was completely out of line from the perspective of those days. Okay, okay, got it. So you just a few moments ago mentioned how the women's rights movement didn't really kind of come back into being and fought again until the uh, 1960s. When that took place, did the women during the 1960s, did they look back on their sisters from uh, 60, 70 years earlier, 50, 60, 70 years earlier with respect? And did they use similar strategies? Or how did they think back to those earlier women's rights activists? That's a great question. And one of the reasons why I love talking about the first wave of the women's movement is that many voices in the second wave talked about the first wave as if it was not radical, that they became focused on suffrage and that that was a very limited goal and that what they were about in the second wave was much more radical than what the women were about in the first wave. And I think that is just a complete misreading of the first wave. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like the sorts of things that would be said or expressed more recently? Um, That they became completely fixated on the right to vote 
and lost track of or didn't see the myriad ways in which women were oppressed. Okay, you get the vote, now you can vote, but what about all sorts of societal attitudes toward women, cultural norms, restrictions, ways in which women were otherwise not seen as full-fledged human beings? So the idea was that the second wave, we're going to take women's experience out into the public sphere well beyond voting to talk about what it's like to be a woman, to be a mother, to be a wife in suburban America, and how absolutely dehumanizing that is. That's just one branch of the second wave. There are others. I mean, you have a whole wonderful variety of feminisms in the second wave that understand themselves to be so much more radical. You have Marxist feminists, et cetera, who are saying that women's oppression is the first form of oppression in the human race, and the vote is like a nothing. What they really need to do is to liberate themselves from men altogether, not have relationships with men, certainly not have sex with them, and be fully liberated. And so, you know, getting suffrage feels to them like a walk in the park. Okay, so it sounds like there was a lack of, um, uh, what would be the right word, acknowledgement or appreciation for the shoulders on which they stood. Would that be right? (laughs) Certainly among some second wave feminists, not all. I want to be super clear. I mean, there were some who certainly appreciated what women in the first wave did. But there were others who did not see it as nearly radical enough. And they were, you know, the, the, the real deal. This is all information you came by when you were working on your dissertation, which you started off looking at much more recent waves of feminism and then went back to this earlier phase on the advice of your uh, committee. Were you surprised by what you found when you went back? Yes. You know, I didn't know much at all about that first wave. And Ellen Carroll Du Bois has this wonderful book on the first wave of the women's movement. That was such a wonderful learning experience. And reading that book, I developed an intense appreciation and love, (laughs) since have loved giving lectures and thinking about what those women did. It's really quite remarkable. Just a quick note for listeners, the title of that book is Feminism and Suffrage, The Emergence of an Independent Woman's Movement in America. I mean, the idea of getting a population of men, most of whom, not all, but most of whom think that the idea of women's suffrage is absolutely ridiculous, um, to get a movement to persuade those men to grant them this fundamental right is really extraordinary. Are there any particular standout moments or standout stories that you still remember other than what you've already shared with us? There are some amazing responses to, for example, the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, where you have, you have like you have men writing in local papers about, well, you know, like we can't put up with this. I mean, if we do this, like what's going to happen to dinner? Like who's going to darn our socks, you know? Right. What will happen to the elbows of our sweaters that need to be repaired? I mean, it's quite, I mean, in some ways, it's just so um, concrete, uh, like what the interests were. Why should women not have the right to vote? Well, because we men, you know, we, we need our socks darned. So we can't be having them getting involved in politics. And, you know, I'm sorry to say that there are 
pockets in our country today that would like women to be put back in their place. You know, as I'm sitting talking to you, I'm sitting cross-legged and I'm looking at the underside of my foot, which has a big hole in my sock. And I'm thinking, gosh, nobody would want me to darn their socks if they knew what bad job I do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, is there anything that you think I should have asked you and I haven't? No, I'm looking sort of at my notes, what things I thought might come up. And I think we're good. Well, Susan Trollinger, thank you very much for taking time out from what I am sure is a very busy schedule to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has just been an absolute pleasure. For Ohio Humanities, I'm Rachel Hopkin. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at rhopkin at ohiohumanities.org. And please note there's no S on the end of Hopkin. Real Issues, Real Conversations is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner for the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This podcast is also made possible in part through the support of the Ohio State University's Humanities Institute. Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.